You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Jesus looked at John in Revelation 1.8 and said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty, or the Pentocrator. The word Pentocrator is of Greek origin, and it means simply ruler of all, or almighty, or all-powerful. This is about Christ's and his pre-existent deity, his post-ascension lordship. And in the ancient church, in the early church, it was understood that Christ is Lord of all the earth and rules with a political rule that is bringing in a new government in all the governments. That Christ is ruler of all is not just the one who holds the stars in place, although he does. Is not just the one who holds the moon and the sun in place, although he does. But the early church understood that the rule of Christ had something to do with a politic. And it's embedded in Jesus' own teaching. Something he mentioned 133 times in the Gospels. Anybody want to guess what it is? The kingdom of God. So the early church, when they heard Jesus say, the kingdom of God has broken in or come near, the early church heard that as a concrete rule. That because the reign of God is being made available to all people, there's a way of life that is now required of all those people. And that he is the ruler of all, and as the ruler of all, he is the righteous judge and the lover of all humanity. And that's how the early church understood Christ as Pentocrator. That Christ is righteous judge of all nations, of all peoples, of all ethnicities, ethnicities of all things. That he's judge. And that as judge, he's also lover. Lover of all humanity. And so in his judgment, he is gentle, but yet he is strong and firm. And in his life, he is gentle, but yet he is strong and firm. Now, the early church embracing this idea got picked up their cues from some of the Greek translations of the Hebrew Bible, of the Old Testament. When it was translated into Greek, something called the Septuagint, which you would see in footnotes in your Bibles, um, Pantocrator is used for the Lord of hosts, or El Shaddai, or the God Almighty. And Pantocrator is a word used to describe Jesus and God himself about nine times in Revelation. So this is not something that's just happenstance. This was a title. This was a frame by which they understood the presence and the work of Christ in the world. Now, here's where it gets all wonky. So, the early church understood this to be true, and they understood that the government of God had broken into all governments, and people who became citizens of the kingdom had an allegiance to that government above all governments, and that that dictated an ethic, and that primary ethic was what? Do you know? Love. Because they understood Jesus to teach that what is the greatest command? To love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. What did Jesus say? All of the law and the prophets hang on these two things. So the early church understood that the guiding law of the kingdom of God, the primal law, the constitution of the government of God, is one of loving God with one's whole self and one with loving neighbor as oneself. That all got wonky in about the 16th century. When Euro-Anglo folk wanted to expand their kingdom westward and wanted to take on Asia, Africa, and the Americas and 
promote their own rule and their own reign as a government. But here's the thing. It wasn't just any kind of government. See, at this point in time in history, church had become government and government had become church. It was imperial Christianity. And so Christ as Pentocrator was a leading banner for the movement West that was colonialism, that began to colonize people groups, and that was promoting triumphalism, and that was promoting what's called ethno-religious superiority, meaning that Anglos were more superior than all others, and that Christianity was more superior than all others, and therefore their government and nation-state was more superior than all others, and all other nation-states must submit to their nation-state because they are the expression of Christ Pentocrator. It's in history. And then all sorts of things happen as a result of that, right? I never forget when Alice and I went to Hawaii some years ago. Um, and I can't remember, I may be getting the details wrong, but when we were going through Hawaii, we were going to do the, you know, uh, the tour thing. Like We wanted to see the oceans, the beach, and all that stuff, and that was all extraordinary. Um, and the coffee was fantastic. Uh, and, and so we were going through, and we got into a taxi. I believe it was a taxi. Um, it may, I, I think it was a taxi. And it cost us like $1,000. Like, you know, Hawaii's like expensive. I don't know how much it cost, but it felt like $1,000. Everything there felt like $1,000. Um, and we got into the taxi, and, and the guy who was there, he was a native of Hawaii, and he was telling us all about Hawaii, and he was telling us all about the things we should go see. And he said, man, you should go to a luau and see the dances. And we were like, man, I like to dance. We'll go see the dance. I'm, you know, I, can, I can work a hula, uh, you know, hula scooter. I, I can do all that. Let's go do that dance thing. And he said, but here's the thing you need to know. And he, he got real serious, and he said, see, we now are a native people who do not know our own story. We have no memory of ourselves anymore. And I said, why? He said, well, when white missionaries came to our islands and they converted us, they uprooted all of our culture. And that included our dances. And our dances were more than just religious dances. They were also cultural expressions of who we are. He said, so now we're a people with no memory. Now, at the time, I think I was either moving into grad school or I was in grad school. I can't remember. And I was studying Western missionary movements, and that was a recurring theme. What I saw was that when Christianity moved on westward, in the name of Christ Pentocrator, began to uproot cultures and uproot traditions and uproot people groups from themselves and simply colonize according to their own way of life. That is not Christ Pentocrator. That's just bad history, bad theology, but it is a theology that painted the entire Western Hemisphere. The early church understood Christ Pentocrator as something different. Because the early church remembered that before Christ presented himself as the ascended ruler of all, that Christ first presented himself as an olive-skin-colored Jew from Nazareth who for our sake, though, though he was rich, became poor. And although he was strong, became weak. And so they understood that Christ, as ruler of all, is righteous judge. But he is lover of humanity. And you see it in the actual icons or in the iconography or in the pictures. Uh, you see it in the pictures. If I uh, go to that picture You'll see it in the pictures that are there that are called Christ uh, Pentocrator. And you'll notice in these icons, and if you'll look at the worship guide, you'll see Jesus doing this like makeshift peace sign, right? Or, or sometimes that thing that you do with your friends, 
and then you, you, know, you have to hit them for doing it. Like, sometimes it looks like Jesus is curving his hands. One time, Josh Blue, I got to tell on you. So we had a, we had a, no, man, it's funny. We had a, I had a, like a contemporary worship, like we had a contemporary painting of, of Jesus and the worship art, and it looked like Jesus was doing this thing. And so, so Josh circled it and emailed and like texted it to me, and it was like, I got to hit you. And you know, like, like it was like, like Jesus is playing that game, but that's the thing. We've always wondered, like, what's he doing with his hands? Well, what's he, what he's doing with his hands, it was a sign of gentleness, but yet firmness, right? That's why this icon in all of its variations is called Christ Pentocrator. It is to illustrate that in this, in this painting, Christ is pictured as righteous judge, but in, in firm, firm, yet gentle, as lover of humanity. Yeah, you'll never look at that thing. Now you know. Now you know why all the pictures of Jesus is like this. And that is the sign of Christ Pentocrator. The early church, the 6th century, in the 6th century, the church began to paint these expressions of Jesus as Christ as Pentocrator on their cathedral ceilings and all over the place to communicate that in this world dominated by Babylonian empires, Christ is connected both to His all-powerful presence and all-encompassing presence. As a matter of fact, in the 6th century, it became tradition of the church to depict God with us, which in the Bible is called Emmanuel, as Christ Pentocrator. Because the idea is as the ruler of all, He is present in all, holding all things together, as Paul would say in Colossians. So Christ is not just righteous judge. He's also lover of humanity. And it kind of stems from some of the teaching of Paul, right? In 1 Corinthians 15, when Christ comes back as the righteous judge, Paul says this, when everything is subject to Christ, then the Son of Man himself, then the Son himself will be subject to the one who subjected everything to him, so that God may, read this with me, be all in all. Be all in all. That there will come a day where there won't be one nick or cranny of the world that Christ's fullness is not present. And just try to imagine what that could even possibly mean. But here's the thing, that's not just a new age to come reality because the kingdom of God has come and has broken in, albeit not in its fullness, that'll come when Jesus returns, but because the kingdom of God has broken in, because the reign and rule of God has been made evident, because the new government of God has broken into all earthly governments, Christ is to be all in all even now. See, Paul would put it this way in Colossians 3 verse 11, he would say, that in Christ, there's not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free. In other words, there are not your categories of separation and belonging. There is Christ who is what? All and in all. Think about the language. Paul could have just said in everything. Paul could have just said in all things. But Paul was redundant when he said, who is all and in all. Here's what I think that means. See, the reality is when the people of God see and believe Christ is Pentocrator, when the people of God really see and believe that Christ is the ruler of all, that he is the righteous judge who is also at the same time the lover of humanity, and then the church, as a result of righteous judge and lover of humanity, begin to live in line with his rule, meaning begin to obey his ethics and embody his love, then the rule and the reign of God becomes tangible to all people, 
Where there is no hope, there is hope. Where there is no light, there is light. Where there is no love, there is love. Where there is no peace, there is peace. And then the reality of Christ being all in all is made evident to all. When the church lives as though this is true. And I think that's the tie to this particular text. So when the people of God believe, really, that he is righteous judge as ruler of all, and he is also at the same time lover of all humanity, and that that has then a call on our lives by which we live, and we begin to see Christ at work in our lives. Because here's the thing that church is supposed to believe, that Christians are at least supposed to believe, right? is that this Christ who is ruler of all is also omnipresent, right? He's not just omniscient and omnipotent. He's not just all-knowing and all-powerful. He is all-present. And what does that mean? I think it means this. There's not a space and a place where Christ is not at work. The question is, do we see? And the reason I've come to believe that I don't see, and the reason that sometimes I think you may not see, is because we may not truly in some sort of moment in our lives believe that he is Christ, Pentocrator, that he is ruler of all that he is righteous judge and at the same time lover of humanity. And we aren't living in according to that rule and we're not moving in accordance to that love. And then we don't see. So um, when Allison and I were in campus ministry at University of Georgia, um, a campus in the Southeastern Conference that desperately needs God, um, we, we were there uh, come on, only the SEC people got that, so I appreciate the love. We were there, and we were serving these college students, but we were serving it as associated with this church there. You'll see the guy to the left. His name is Solomon. He was, uh, he was our campus ministry intern. I hired him to be an intern while he was trying to pursue maybe seminary and sort out his life. He just had a passion and a heart that was just compelling, and so we brought him in, and he became the intern with us, and we played some music together and had, had good times together. When he first got hired, Allison was, was pregnant with Ian, and I, we would have these Wednesday night dinners as a church. And these Wednesday night dinners as a church were called, but guess what, like spaghetti dinners, right? Like that's what church people do. We call them spaghetti dinners. Now, generally, spaghetti becomes kind of a moniker for just food, but this was legit. Like we only ate spaghetti. Um, it was like spaghetti with marinara, chicken spaghetti, spaghetti parmesan. I mean, it was, but it was spaghetti. There was always noodles involved, right? Like it was always spaghetti. And it was cool because as the church we ate. One Wednesday night, I noticed that the trash can in the kitchen was filled with spaghetti. And I was like, what's up with this? I mean, I want to throw mine away too, but I don't. Like we eat it. So what's up with this? It's a lot. And so I went to the woman whose ministry it was to cook this food. I mean, she, she worked so hard over this ministry. And I asked her, I said, hey, what, what's all this? She said, this is all the spaghetti that nobody eats from the pan. Like, this is all the leftover spaghetti. We can't keep it. And I thought, well, I knew that there was a tent city in Athens off of a bridge where people living through homelessness lived. They were living in tents in Tent City, right? And I'd met some of them along the way, just in some things I was involved in. And I thought, well, you know, like they could eat, right? So I asked the person, I said, what if I went and I bought clamshells? And then maybe if instead of throwing it away, could you maybe for me, could you, could you pack it in the clamshells and then I'll just come pick it up? And she said, absolutely. So she started packing in the clamshells and I wrote on the clamshell, by the grace of God, in the name of Jesus. 
And so I, I, me and my lovely pregnant wife got into the car and we loaded up the 15 or so clamshells and we made our way to the bridge and into the tents. And Allison and her beautiful pregnant self would walk down the bridge and into the tents and we would, we would ask, hey, do you, want the, do you want the food? And they'd be like, yeah, I want the food. So we'd drop the food off. We wouldn't do a like bait and switch nonsense like, well, you can't eat it till you come to Bible study. Like we, were, we, weren't, we were just like, you're hungry, right? Like you're hungry, here's some food. If Jesus, and they were like, why are you doing this? And my, my catch-all statement was, well, if Jesus was walking by here and he saw you sitting here and he, he could turn blades of grass to spaghetti, here it is. Like, here's the spaghetti, right? Like, here's the deal. And we, just, and, and we just dropped it off for the longest time. And eventually we would sit there. And eventually Allison was, was getting, um, she, was, she was growing. Um, and like, this was easier in first gathering. It was, she was growing and she couldn't walk down the bridge and I couldn't carry all this stuff by myself. So I called Solomon and Solomon was the intern. And I was like, Hey bro, like, why don't you go with me? Uh, Allison can't go anymore. Why don't you go with me and let's deliver the food to our friends down here. Now I called Solomon and Solomon said, and I asked Solomon what this was like for him. And he said to me, he said, crazy you asked this. I just preached a sermon on that same story. And I said, can you send it to me? So now I'm going to read to you what Solomon said. It's providence, man. Solomon's own words. So as we drove toward the North Avenue Bridge on a Thursday afternoon in 2007, I could feel myself growing more and more uncomfortable. Eventually, I blurted out, so how should I talk to them? What do I say? Fred flatly replied, well, brother, we treat them like friends. And with that, I embarked on a journey of becoming a friend to those who are impoverished. For the last 12 years, I have in one way or another intentionally sought after those friendships for the sake of God's glory. Doing so led me to run a faith-based nonprofit organization that served over a million meals to more than 20,000 people in five years. God has led me to officiate weddings and funerals and baptisms and baby blessings for the homeless and working poor. I know former pimps who are now deacons. I've attended graduation ceremonies for kids orphaned by the streets. I've used my position in my community to defend my friends from unjust and unconstitutional treatment and invited them to every important life moment of my life over these years. I now co-pastor a cross-cultural church plant in Athens, Georgia that prioritizes radical welcome as one of our 12 guiding principles. He goes on to say, when the Lord allows you to see His Holy Spirit in people that are always overlooked and despised, it changes you. That day, I saw the image of God in folks with dirty faces and bad teeth under the North Avenue Bridge. I thought we were going to bring the gospel to those folks, and I found that God was already there. Oh, It was in the ordinary, ongoing practice of life that Solomon decided to join me that day. And in doing so, in the ordinary, ongoing way of life, caught a glimpse of God in a way that he had never known. And it changed his life for good. Now, what I have to tell you is over the course of time, what was just me and Solomon ended up being me and Solomon and our campus ministry student leaders. And then what became me and Solomon and campus ministry student leaders became an entire campus ministry. You had 100 students begging to go and take food. And by this time, we were going all throughout the city of Athens. And we weren't just dropping off food. We were sitting there and sometimes eating food together. And as a result of that, 
All of Tent City became Christians and were baptized into Christ and came to our church. We saw extraordinary things taking place. And then we saw them coming into the doors of this church building. It's big old white church building with its tall white steeple. And the tragedy is we saw them coming in. They would sit in a pew and the pews would clear because they weren't like us. But that was beautiful for the church because it unearthed things about us as a church that we didn't know existed. So we then to do the hard work of shepherding and pastoring and walking with people to help people understand this. And by the time Allison and I were called to leave Athens, Georgia, to go to Amarillo, Texas, we had so many people off the streets baptized into Christ and now housed, because we were housing them too, that they had to hire one of our former student leaders as a full-time minister to tend to all of that. You know him. His name is Blake Miller. Many of you who's now a chaplain in a pediatric infectious disease ward in Atlanta. It's the ordinary things. God is present as ruler of all in all things and in the places we least expect, and that includes the ordinary. That's the thing I remember about this story. That's the thing I think about when I think of Christ as Pentocrator. And then I also remember Anna. Anna, she has a little small number of verses in the Bible. Anna, we find in Luke chapter 2, verse 36. Here's what Luke says. There was also a prophetess, Anna, a daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was well along in years, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and was a widow for 84 years. She did not leave the temple complex, serving God night and day with fasting and prayer. Here's what I think is interesting about the story. Anna's life is extraordinarily predictable. I mean, in this second chapter, Luke describes her as an aged female prophet of God, a prophetess. She's one of 10 prophetesses explicitly mentioned in both testaments of the Bible. She's one of six, only six named prophetesses. She's the only named female prophet in the New Testament. Other female prophets are mentioned in the New Testament. She's the only named one. Luke very purposefully, look at the text, Luke very purposefully tells us that she was married to her husband for only seven years before he died. Then he tells us that she was a widow for 84 years. So then it got me to wonder, how old was she, right? Like if, well, if we keep in Jewish tradition and she was married at 14 and then she was married for seven years and now she's 84, we would have to imagine that she's at least 105 years old. She has Sister June Long beat by a few. And though Anna is in many ways unusual, as Luke tells us, her life is incredibly predictable. Like you might even say that her days are steeped in a routine of devout obedience that is quite ordinary and mundane. I mean, Luke makes it a point to tell us that she never leaves the temple complex. Day and night she offers prayers and on occasion accompanies it with fasting, particularly this one. No doubt this aged, devout prophetess of God prays daily and nightly for the redemption of Israel because that would have been the prayer as she awaited God's glory and God's kingdom to come. She would pray to God Pentocrator. She would pray to the Lord of hosts and God Almighty for the kingdom of God to come. And most likely... She devoted herself solely to God when she was widowed some 84 years ago. So for 84 years, her days have been marked by routine and ordinary morning, noon, and evening prayer strolling the temple complex every day for, you ready for this? 30,660 days of the same old, same old. I'm intrigued by Anna strolling along the temple complex in prayer every day for 30,660 days. This 
is her prophetic ministry. This is her faithful service to the Lord, day in, day out. This is her deeply devout routine. Just this. In all of its beauty and wonder, it just seems so ordinary. Seems so mundane. But I'm equally intrigued by Luke's detail, his description of both her life and ministry, and this two-verse character tucked away in a much larger story, yet gains so much attention by Luke and the Holy Spirit in this detail. And this is maybe why. See, what happens in this moment is that Mary and Joseph take baby Jesus for the ritual of circumcision, and they encounter Simeon. And Simeon takes part in this ritual and proclaims that this Jesus is the one that God has promised. This is the ruler of all. And Anna catches word of that in her ordinary day. She sees in her ordinary day number 30,660, just like the other 630,659 days. She sees Jesus, and this is what she says at that very moment, verse 38 of chapter 2. At that very moment, she came up and began to thank God and speak about Him to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Here's what I love about the story. It's in the mundane and the ordinary that God was always working, always working and hearing her prayers and always there and in that day reveals His presence in a very extraordinary and particular way. And it changes Anna just like it changed Solomon. So here's my question. Where are you seeing God at work in your ordinary? See, my fear is sometimes we grow bored with the ordinary that we start looking for the extraordinary. So we want to find God in a song. We want to find God in a sermon. We want to find God in the feeling. We want to find God in the devotional. We want to find God in the prayer. We want to find God in these extra moments. But there He is in your ordinary day, present, because Christ is all in all as Pentocrator, as ruler of all. He's present. We don't see because we're too bored with the ordinary. There he is the whole time. And what would happen if we saw him? What might happen if we opened our eyes and saw that the ruler of all is all in all and he's there in the ordinary, present at work, out ahead of us, and we are, instead of being overcome with boredom and feelings of meaninglessness, we allow these feelings to direct our eyes inward. Instead of doing that, we start becoming preoccupied with this idea that Christ is at work in this moment, in this crazy, jacked-up, lunatic moment, that Christ is here, or in this bored, seemingly meaningless, empty moment that Christ is still here. And I don't mean just in me, I mean working here. What if we started to look for that? Could it lead us to something else? See, when I think about Solomon, I mean, I told you the story about, about how when I was a stockbroker on an ordinary day to work, I stopped and visited Mr. Clifton, Clifford, who was homeless, and it changed my life. I think about Solomon and how this little ministry in Athens, we began housing people. That's when I started learning what it was like to house people. We didn't have any money. We didn't go to outside resources. We went to the church and went to the students, and we called former students who graduated as alumni, and we began finding ways to house people as ourselves. And I was busting my hump trying to figure out where to go and what this meant. I would have never, ever, ever known 
that that was also another movement of God to lead me to be a part of witnessing this church, birth a nonprofit, that this weekend, this moment is right now, 3E Restoration staff in Tupelo, Mississippi, training another church. It's crazy. Matter of fact, this year, 3E is going to Canada. Like, like Paul, Canada, Manitoba. Like, it's cold there. Like, this movement that bursts out of these very mundane, ordinary things becomes this extraordinary thing. I mean, it was just an ordinary deal that's become this thing that's bigger than anything I could have ever imagined. Solomon's life. I mean, he's ex- extraordinary Solomon. He, what he's done. I mean, a million meals to 20,000 men and women living through homelessness in Athens. Leading a nonprofit, now pastor of a cross-cultural, multi-ethnic church who tries to reach specifically to the most vulnerable in Athens, Georgia. It's extraordinary. No, it's not. It's ordinary. It's our vocabulary that's out of whack. Think about that sometimes. I think about how we go to look for God in places <laughs> and we pass God on the way there. It's in the mundane routine of the ordinary days that those moments where Christ's rule breaks in and the presence of God is made manifest. But sadly, it's in the mundane routine of the ordinary days that our minds grow numb and our hearts grow stale and our lives grow bored that we fail to look and listen for God in the ordinary. And I'm telling you, church, it doesn't have to be this way. Christ, Pentocrator, as ruler of all, who is all in all, tells us so. The righteous judge who is lover of humanity tells us so. Anna's story tells us so. Solomon's story tells us so. Mike tells us so. God incarnate in Jesus Christ tells us so. Tim Keller once said that if Jesus became incarnate to live among the ordinary, then what we call ordinary is actually really special to God. I want to tell you that God is at work in every moment of every day, somehow, some way in your life. And by at work, I may mean just simply present with you in it. But He is there. When you are gathered with the people of God and in the presence and the company of other people of God, you can know that you know that you know that you know that Christ is somewhere in this moment. Will I tend to His reign and rule that breaks in? See, every week we gather, we come to the table, and there's the bread and there's the wine, there's the body and the blood of Jesus. And Jesus has said, I am present with you here. You see Christ present at the table in the bread and the cup. You see Christ present at the table as the host of the table. You see Christ present at the table in the neighbor beside you at the table. You see Christ present at the table in the people of God who gather at the table simply because we've confessed that Jesus is the ruler of 